Welcome to this series of podcasts for FinTech CTO Club, a community where tech executives learn and share best leadership practices. Here, Vasil Soloschuk, CEO of Insart and the author of FinTech CTO Club, will discuss burning topics on the FinTech product development arena with the technical leaders in the industry. Today it's episode 2 of our podcast. Our guest today is Alessandro Preziosi, CTO at SumUp Analytics, a machine learning startup that was born out of a university research project. So could you please introduce yourself and uh, what is uh, your background uh, in technology and actually what's your current role as CTO? Yeah, okay. Uh, So yeah, I studied computer engineering um, in Italy and I specialized in machine learning specifically. And so before co-founding SumUp Analytics, I was working on self-driving cars um, at a startup called Vizlab, which then got acquired. And then I worked for a bit as a machine learning researcher at uh, Politecnico di Torino in Italy, a university. And then from a research project with Berkeley, uh, we were working on text an- machine learning for text analytics and we got some interest from industry and we decided to turn this project into a startup. And so that's where SumUp Analytics um, is coming from. And yeah, SumUp Analytics, the company where I'm working now, is focused on basically some very fast algorithms for text analytics so we can analyze big amounts of text data, extract uh, key topics and sentiments so people can drive business decisions, analyzing uh, like social media, news, reviews, and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, my day-to-day job, yeah, I'm the CTO of the startup. It's four co-found- co-founders. Uh, it's me, CTO, a professor from Berkeley who's leading the research, and two people from a finance background. Uh, one, is Emmanuel Ballod coming from, from BlackRock and Serge Marquis coming from Two Sigma and Goldman Sachs. So they, they saw our technology and they were very interested in how it could be applied to finance. Uh, they saw uh, an interesting use case in finance to, um, yeah, to use text data and drive investment decisions. So they joined us and uh, that's where the company started basically. Uh, the technology itself could be applied to different verticals, but we mm-hmm. saw most interest from the finance sector right now. We also saw some interest from retail and low, uh, but our first focus is finance. Yeah. So, yeah. So could you, could you explain, please? So why is it, uh, uh, why have you chosen like finance, um, like a first priority to apply this technology? Because as you said, it can be applied to, to different uh, verticals by, but, what the benefit of applying it for financial world, for you know decision making uh, uh, in the investment process, and uh, you know why is it the top priority at the moment for your company this vertical specifically? Yes, I think. Well, we had a technology. We didn't. So as you said, we it could have been applied in different areas. So we got some interest from. Uh, yeah, uh, retail and law, as I mentioned, but then the most interest from finance, and especially these two people specifically liked the idea and the, the technology so much that they decided to join us 
and form a, create this startup and actually sell specifically to finance initially. And I think that's probably because in finance specifically, it's very easy to see um, actually how this helps the bottom line. It's very easy to quantify, uh, you know, create models, for example, based on this technology and actually see some numbers of, okay, this is making me this amount of money. So uh, I think that's an advantage over in other industries. It's a bit harder to quantify how helpful the technology is. Whereas in finance, I think um, sometimes you can have a very clear uh, measure of how, how much the technology is helping you. So it's probably easier for us to, to sell that in a way. Uh, although selling to finance institution, we've seen it's, it's not easy. It's long sales cycles, uh, but having some insiders who have worked in the industry definitely helps. Um, yeah, I think that's the main difference. Um, yeah, being able to quantify the results is very important in finance. And also, from many people coming to finance, they really felt this as a problem. They had to spend a lot of their daily time reading information, reading a lot of news reports from banks and institutions. So they understand that there is so much inf information out there that's very useful to drive investments, but they don't have enough time to actually personally read everything. So um, they are looking into solutions to automate this kind of uh, process. And yeah. So have you done uh, any integrations or developed the API yourself? So can you explain please in more details? Uh, what types of integrations have you done and uh, what your API, what, what do you provide uh, within your API actually? Yes. Uh, yes, we do provide an API for others to integrate uh, our software into their solution. And actually our API effort has been very successful. It has generated more demand than the, the front-end software in the end because I mean, we realized when selling to businesses, most of them already have an infrastructure set up and being able to plug in uh, a piece in their existing infrastructure is really important. Um, it's, you, often it's better than having a standalone solution. So um, yeah, so selling the API for us was very important. We ex basically all the functionality of our software is available through the API so people can build especially in finance, you know, um, quantitative finance, for example, you can build an investment a trading strategy on top of our technology. Um, we can analyze the textual data and extract some kind of signals like topic strengths or sentiment, which can be used as input to other parts of the pipeline to drive a quantitative investment strategy. And yeah, so we do provide APIs and for what concerns integrating our other platform into our software, uh, one big thing, so we are a data analytics company and one thing we realized is that people usually are, are lazy and often they don't even have a lot of data to put inside the software. So it's very important for us to be able to actually um, yeah, get as much data in the software with as little work as possible required for the users. So one thing we do, for example, is we scrape um, different sor public sources that people are in finance are often interested in, for example, central bank reports um, or um, company filings, corporate filings, uh, since we saw a lot of demand for analyzing this kind of information. 
And so yeah, we do a lot of scraping, if that can be considered an, int an integration in a way, but we're also looking into uh, actual integrations into other software that's in our roadmap. We're not there yet, but we already have a few things we want to integrate. For example, software like uh, Bloomberg or Salesforce or even emails so people can automatically analyze their email. Uh, since we realize these are some of the main sources of textual data um, inside these companies we're trying to sell to. Um, so yeah, um, in general, I believe it's important to you know, do one thing and do it very well. So I do believe in this concept of providing APIs and integrating into other softwares and specializing, not trying to do everything ourselves. Uh, but I think that that works, trying to build something that uses other people's work and can connect to other people's work uh, mm -hmm. and be very specialized and very good at what, what it does. Okay, that's great. So, and uh, could you name a couple of major use cases uh, where you can, in, in, the, in the financial world, uh, where you can uh, apply your technology? So what are the real world use cases? that you have with your yes. clients right now? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm probably not the best person to answer that since I don't interact with the clients as much as our CEO, for example, or our salespeople, but mm -hmm. um, okay. we've seen different uh, use cases. For example, at a very high level, um, people nowadays, you know, they try to diversify their portfolio a lot. So they're invested, for example, in uh, fixed income around the world. So in many different countries. And it's very hard to you know, keep informed about everything that's happening in all countries around the world. So we can easily analyze, for example, reports from central bank in their native language in a lot of countries around the world. And we can quickly give you an overview, give the user an overview of, you know, what's been, what are the main topics they're discussing right now and how the sentiment has been changing or the consensus over certain issues. And that's something that in the past was very hard to do. You had to pay people maybe that knew the native language and uh, you know, would read these reports and provide an executive summary or something. And we automated this process. So um, yeah, this is something that people have found useful, um, especially yeah, this multilingual capability um, is quite useful. And uh, another kind of application is more in the securities. So. As I mentioned before, yeah, analyzing corporate filings or even the changes in corporate filings. Sometimes a company would file, you know, multiple times or the same form multiple times and you want to automatically analyze what has changed, what are the new topics without having to read everything because most of it, 90% is pretty much the same usually. So you would be spending 90% of your time just reading the same thing over and over, whereas we can extract the important information, which is really the, the delta, what has changed over time to drive the investment decision. Um, and then, I mean, people are doing, even trying quantitative, purely quantitative investment strategies using our solution. Maybe they already had a strategy using certain signals and they are introducing text-based signals in their strategy. Because especially in certain markets, for example, emerging markets like China, uh, there is a lot of retail investors and a lot of their decisions are based on actually text information, social media, news. And right now it's pretty hard to get that information into quantitative models. But what we do is bridge that gap and 
basically extract signals from the text. So um, yeah, we've seen a couple applications in, in that sense as well. I think, okay. yeah, I think that's Okay, thank you. Thank you. So back to your uh, CTO role. So uh, what would you name, and could you please describe what are the major responsibilities um, uh, for yourself at the moment? And uh, what would you name the main challenges that you have uh, as a CTO? Of the startup company yeah so yeah we are still pretty young so i started initially i was doing really most of the coding but now we we got our seed round of funding so we the team has grown so my day-to-day -day, let's say earlier my day-to-day -day work was most 50 percent reading and learning about technology and 50 percent implementing and coding myself now a lot more of my time is spent managing the other junior engineers that have joined the company and we are one peculiarity is we are a pretty distributed team um, so we use a lot of tools like uh, slack and zoom every day to yeah stay up to date and man manage our tasks and the uh, the whole engineering team we yeah we're, we're still pretty small so i can still spend a, a lot of time coding but definitely management is taking a, a bigger chunk of my time um, my time right now and yeah in terms of, you mentioned uh challenges mm -hmm. yeah i think um yeah communication is definitely uh you know an important thing one thing we noticed for example initially we were so small we could everyone could be aware of everything but as you grow um you know it's very ineffective to have for example meetings where everyone is in the meeting and people are just listening and maybe it's not super related to what they're doing and they're just wasting time in a way so we try to keep uh, the communication very optimized we have uh, daily stand-ups with the engineering team very quick in the morning just you know these are the tasks i'm gonna work on but then we only have one big meeting a week where everyone is updated on on the higher level uh, what what's going on and I think that's yeah that's pretty efficient uh, we don't spend too much time in uh, meetings that are not really fruitful um, we just talk one-to-one -one and we use chats a lot uh, we use slack a lot and yeah that's it's very efficient right now um, okay yeah I think uh, yeah also delegating I guess it's one of the big things you have to do as, as you grow so yeah that's very important both for me delegating some tasks to the junior engineers but also teaching the junior engineers to delegate their tasks to other people when when required for example if you're a back-end engineer and there's an issue on front end related to your code you shouldn't be spending a day trying to fix it just send it to the front end engineer that can spend maybe a tenth of the time because they're more familiar with the code base and so I think it's important to have this culture of delegating tasks when uh, when there's somebody else who is more um, you know knows that part of the code better than you and also you know as we're going fast even the junior engineers now will soon be middle management possibly and so they will themselves have to delegate some tasks and if you don't do that you cannot grow as a company so that's uh, it's pretty important okay okay so uh, the next question is, uh, so how, how big is the current team? How it is structured and uh, what development processes 
uh, have you applied? So yeah, our current team is about uh, 15 people now. Uh, and that includes, so there's, uh, our company is still very engineering focused. So it's almost half of it engineers and half of it on the research side since um, we, we do keep doing a lot of research and try to keep our technological edge in machine learning. So, and then there is a small part which is growing, which is on the business side. So I'm all on the, on the sales side, um, but we're still, I would say, yeah, like 85% of the workforce is engineering and research right now. Those are the two bigger teams in our company. And specifically, I, I'm leading the engineering team. So that side, and as I was mentioning before, yeah, we, uh, we try to stick to the agile practices in a way. We do stand-up meetings daily. Uh, yeah, and we, we actually have, uh, yeah, we use software like Trello to, trust, to track tasks. But we, we really, I think the most important thing is the chats we use daily because you know, in software development, there's always issues popping up and it's very hard to plan ahead and know all the issues that will pop up. So it's good to keep constant communication, I think, and be quick in solving new issues that come along. Uh, yeah, I think, the, I don't know if you have other specific questions on this, but I think that's a, an overview of how we are. Um, yeah, how, what's the structure of the company and how we are. And, Okay, okay. So, um, as soon as you have uh, engineers and uh, you have also research uh, uh, projects, let's say, in, in, uh, and activities in your company, so is there any difference between managing, uh, you know, development and engineering tasks and projects and uh, managing research projects? So, what's, what's the, what the major differences? What would you name here? Yeah, I think so, at least in the case of a startup for the engineering team, we really try to move fast right now. And so we have a, a if you want, a pretty short sight, sighted vision. So we, we do a feature after feature after feature, bug fix after bug fix, and we try to move very fast, which sometimes is not ideal, but I feel like it's necessary at the beginning of the life of a company. And then we do spend some time doing, you know, code refactoring and trying to improve the code quality because when you move so fast, it's not easy to keep a high standard of quality uh, of tests and whatnot. So we're slowly, also on the engineering side, we're, we're slowly moving from uh, a mindset of really moving fast to having more tests and moving a bit slower as we grow. But we're still moving pretty fast and uh, everything is pretty short term. We don't we have a long-term roadmap, but day-to-day -day is really, you know, feature after feature and bug fix after bug fix. On the research side, it's very different because your, you know, um, your timelines are much longer. Maybe you spend like a year researching something and you don't even know if at the end of the year that will have the results you expect. Sometimes, you know, research is like that. You might not have a, uh, <laughs> any fruitful results for a long time. So... On that side, I mean, I think on the research side, one thing that is very important is to not be, you know, in your own little box, but always learn from the outside because there's a lot of researchers, you know, working on new technology. So it's really good to keep reading new papers that 
come out and learn about what other people are doing and what technologies are working better or not. So uh, that's what the research team does a lot. Um, our co-founder, the professor from Berkeley, he, every week he produces a, a weekly digest of you know, new research in our sector. So the research team can be aware of these things. And then uh, in terms of the day-to-day -day work, yeah, it's, it's very different from the engineering. It's a lot of trial and error. And it's important to have, whenever possible, some quantifiable benchmarks and results to understand, you know, is accuracy improving, is speed improving, and try to use that to, to guide the, the research decisions. But yeah, it's definitely uh, a much longer cycle than the engineering um, cycle, but we, we feel like it's uh, very important. You don't feel the fruits, you know, very short term, but in the long term, if you want to stay competitive, and our main competitive edge really comes from the research. We have a much faster and much more accurate algorithm than the competition, but if we don't keep researching, we're gonna lose that edge. So it's, it's a long-term investment that you do. Um, I think it's important. Okay, okay, thank you. So another topic is about the uh, technological stack. So basically how do you, uh, how did you select the specific technologies and what are they to build the software product that you have and uh, what's what was the decision process here so why why have you chosen these technologies not the others and also moving forward probably you need to add you know like more frameworks or libraries uh to your stack so how what's what's your approach uh when you need to select some new technology to implement uh, uh this, this software solution actually yes yes that's a good question and actually i spend a lot of my time uh, just doing that you know selecting what frameworks or libraries to use and a lot of it i feel a lot of time has to be spent i think reading online um whenever I, we're trying to evaluate some libraries or some technologies it's always good to read about people's experiences with that specific library for example online so you can go around forums or you know websites like hacker news um, or stack overflow and see what issues are or what the issues are because because often a technology can look good uh, when you're just playing with it in the beginning but then if you actually read stories from big companies that have been using it maybe when they grow they end up having to switch to another technology because there is some issues that only pop up, for example, when your database grows after a certain size. So it's good to learn from companies that have already used the technology for a decent amount of time and have grown with it and what, whatever issues came up for them. And thankfully nowadays, I think there's a lot of information like that on the internet. So it's important to spend some time doing that reading and trying to understand potential issues that can come up with specific technologies. Well, one thing we, at least uh, me specifically, we try to do is uh, use open source technologies as much as possible. Don't depend on closed source um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's always uh, when you depend on a third party company or provider, uh, there's always a risk attached to it. You know, if that company fails or then they stop updating their software and you don't have access to the source code, that's always a risk uh, attached to that. 
Whereas with open source, you, if there is an issue, you can even, your developers can look into it and patch the software. We've done it for a couple of libraries um, and make it work. Whereas if you depend on a company to do that, it can take longer, there can be issues. So we try to use open source as much as possible. Um, there is only one case, for example, where we're using a closed source, closed source software, and that is for PDF uh, extraction. When we want to extract plain text from PDFs, we've tried different solutions, and in the end, the best one was a closed source and Windows-only solution. And so, uh, regretfully, we, we had to use that, at least for now. So we had to spin up a couple of Windows machines and have to pay for license for this software to do the PDF conversion. And that's a, that's a big bottleneck because, um, you know, it's not as easy to scale as uh, open source or Linux-based software. So whenever possible, we try to, we try to stick to open source and, uh, yeah, everything on our server runs on Linux. So also um, that, that's important. And, yeah, I think, okay. yeah. Okay, okay. That's, that's very interesting. And uh, so the other question I have is about the hiring process. And uh, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you, you started uh, to code yourself and now you have a team of engineers. Mm -hmm. So, and it's very important, you know, to select the right uh, people for your team. So what's your approach while you hire uh, additional engineers? How do you interview them? What are, what are your major criteria? How do you select the right people for your team? So could you please mm -hmm. share some of your experience here? Yes, hiring is uh, definitely, uh, it's, it's not easy. Yes, it's uh, one of the hardest parts maybe in a growing startup. Um, so yes. for us, it, yeah, new hires have come from different places. We have a strong connection with university because we were born out of uh, researches and university project, and we still are in touch with some professors and researchers. So we are in a good position through the connection with the university and the professors to know from them, you know, okay, these are the top students this year. We can talk with them, maybe have them have an internship with us if they want and really evaluate. And we got some really talented people out of, uh, you know, fresh out of university, um, we had they had good marks and they they had an internship with us and some stayed some went to other companies but um, that connection with university we found quite quite useful for sure in the hiring process and then we've used you know other platforms like for a startup we we've got a lot of uh, probably most applicants through AngelList um, angel.com because um, a lot of people that want to work in startups use that platform. Um, but, and also sometimes, yeah, we've, uh, we've even used unorthodox ways. <laughs> For example, we would post tasks on freelance websites like, uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, Upwork, for example. And, you know, when we get a profile that's pretty strong, we can interview them and consider a full-time position rather than, um, just a consulting gig. And so we've used, yeah, a combination of these channels. And for the interview process, uh, we are pretty tough, meaning that uh, since we're still pretty small, all the people in, we, we try to have pretty much everyone in the company interviewing the new candidates. We want to all agree 
about uh, you know new people that come on board, which can be a long process, a long interview process. But um, yeah, I think it's important to have a uh, at least an agreement, uh, in, at least an agreement between the co-founders. Uh, all the co-founders always interview the candidates, and then some specific people that are gonna work with them. Um, me personally, in my technical interviews, I don't believe too much, you know, in the uh, kind of um, quits interviews like uh, logic puzzles because mm -hmm. it's very easy for people to, you know, take a book and study the specific answer to the common questions and maybe they look very good for these trivia <laughs> kind of questions, but then in the day-to-day -day, uh, coding, they're not as strong. So my questions usually are more open-ended um, and I try to really gauge what is the people's experience. Um, so for example, you know, experience with scaling, the, how do you deal with speed issues and scaling issues on a database? And that's a super open-ended question, but you will clearly see the difference between a person that actually has worked with databases and big databases, they will have interesting answers versus a person who is, uh, you know, has done very little with it. And so they, they don't have much to say about it. Um, and sometimes that experience doesn't necessarily correlate with what you see on the CV on paper. Um, maybe some people, you know, have been coding since they were young, um, playing hacking um, with software. And so uh, those profiles, I maybe also because it's similar to my profile, I always was interested in even when I was 11, 12, playing with software, learning to code and hacking ar uh, around. Um, those kind of people, even if maybe they have less experience in companies, they can have a very strong experience from just their interest in coding. Um, and yeah, I think to personally, I try to ask open-ended question so that these kind of things can emerge rather than ask uh, more like trivia or specific puzzle questions. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so thank you for the answer. Uh, so my next question is about the corporate, corporate culture. So how, how would you define the corporate culture? And uh, do you have, uh, I mean, what, what culture do you have in your team? So uh, do you have some for, formalized uh, corporate culture or, or, or not? Uh, so what would you say on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think we're really following a specific uh, rule book for corporate culture. We're still very small. It almost feels like, you know, just a group of friends uh, mm -hmm. working together. It's still a very, very flat organization still. Uh, you know, everyone, and I feel that's important. Everyone in the company feels like they can talk to anyone else. There's not like a very strong hierarchy. So if you want to ask the CEO a question, you can go and ask them or get their input. Um, everything is pretty flat right now in, inside the company and we keep a lot of transparency on all matters uh, we try to, to be very transparent one big thing also is um, we we let people work from home a lot and do remote working when they want because so our main office is in San Francisco but most of the people don't live in San Francisco because it's very expensive as a city so they commute to the office and you know it can take two hours going back and forth to san francisco and it's just two hours of wasted time for them so 
yeah, we don't force everyone to be in the office nine to five, like traditional companies, but as long as you get the work done, you can do it from home uh, or, you know, yeah, personally, for example, I have a portable battery and some days I work from the lake or, mm -hmm. nature. Um, you know, it's, it's nice to have that work-life balance. And nowadays, I feel you can do it with technology. You can be connected anywhere. And yes, we use chats and uh, um, Skype, Zoom. So it's, that being in the office is not mandatory. It's important sometimes to have some kind of interaction, interaction having a whiteboard to sketch ideas, especially in those periods where we're trying to deal to talk about longer term roadmap. And so it's good to all be in one place and bounce ideas. But then on the day-to-day -day work, uh, we feel like even working from home has worked very well. Um, yeah, one thing I noticed, I think, you know, we're a FinTech company, but I think we try to have more of a tech company kind of culture than a financial company culture. In the finance world, and at least that's the feedback we got from the co-founders coming from finance, you know, the culture sometimes can be pretty toxic in some ways. There's a lot of internal competition, machismo, not a lot of work-life balance. People are pushed to work over time. And I think to attract strong developers, developers are more, tend to be more like creative people. And they, I think they evaluate, they put a lot of value, not just in the money they make, but also in this kind of work-life balance and, uh, how much they can be creative in the company. So I think it's good to to have more of a tech company culture than a financial company culture to attract good developers, good talent and diverse talent. Otherwise, after a while, they will switch to another company that has better uh, culture. Okay, okay. So um, we work with many fintech companies and we found this, uh, you know, beneficial to that uh, if, if engineers uh, know uh, aspects of finance, like in general, or maybe uh, more deeper, uh, the domain they work in, like payments or wealth management or portfolio management and or other things. So do, do you think it's important for your engineer and technology team also to learn more about uh, finance and uh, what topics are most important for for your engineers uh, or or you think it's not so or it's not so important so what's what's your opinion here and yeah. what's your approach here no definitely i think uh, we believe it's quite important uh, you know engineers don't need to have super in-depth knowledge on, on all the aspects of finance but it's good for people inside the company to be aware of you know since we're selling to financial institutions at least have an idea of how financial institutions work what are uh, the main you know terms and the main issues and problems they're facing so actually we we did have internally some lectures from the people coming with the background finance, you know, giving a small lecture to the rest of the team and the engineers and giving them an overview of, you know, how banks work, uh, investing and uh, very high level, but at least, you know, one very important thing I think is to know the lexicon and know the words so that it helps to communicate both internally, but also uh, with clients. Um, so that's a big part of that 
knowledge sharing between the finance side and the engineering side pure, even yeah even the pure sharing of the lexicon and dictionary so they understand what is a sell side bank or what is uh, yeah sell side research this this kind of terms that were not they were not familiar with um, now they're definitely even the engineers are more familiar with finance specific terms um, we yeah we did that a bit we we definitely want to do it more as we grow um and we also yeah we participate in some conferences as well sometimes in more on the tech and sometimes on more on the finance side so that that can also be good occasions to have some kind of knowledge sharing um yeah and sometimes even with the outside world you know we we're starting to publish, you know, small blog posts and to share our experience or use case examples, both more on the finance or more on the technology side. And even internally, we can read them as engineers. And, you know, always, it's, I think it's good for the engineers to be aware of how their software is being used and what are the problems that the clients are trying to solve. Otherwise, yeah, it's, uh, it's very hard to just, create a product without being aware of what the end client wants. Okay, okay. So you have mentioned that you're um, seed financed at the moment and uh, as a seed, so the question is as a CTO, uh, how did you participate in this uh, investment round? What, what did you need to prepare uh, for, this, uh, for, 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 the, for this round? Uh, of investment as a CTO of the company so mm -hmm. yes yes I did participate in our conversations with uh, VCs and investors and from the CTO point of view uh, mainly two things uh, were the inputs I provided which is one uh, producing benchmarks um, of our technology so to compare against the competitors in terms of speed and accuracy uh, so we, we could have some actual numbers to present to investors and to show uh, how much better we are than the competition um, and the state of the art. So that was uh, one input I had in the, um, in the investment rounds. And also when discussing the roadmap, um, it's, um, yeah, it's useful for me to, to give the rest of the team a sense of how, how much time certain now complex uh, certain tasks are because when we go to investors and we present a, a roadmap then we need to you know it needs to be a, an exciting roadmap but also a realistic one because we don't want to promise something that is uh, uh, unrealistic and then the investors see that we, we, we cannot deliver on the roadmap so those are two important uh, inputs from the from the CTO side into preparing you know presentations for investors but also even being in the conversation, uh, I haven't been in all conversations, but I do feel it's important to have a technical person in the conversation with investors often because some investors do have a technical background. And so they may come up with a specific technical question that the CEO might not uh, be able to answer at the moment, or maybe the CEO gives an answer, but they, for example, they slightly misuse a technical term and then they, the technical person is like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, okay. And so it's very important, if you can, to have 
someone from the technology side in these conversations. Not for all investors, but some investors, and in the, in the Bay Area, a lot of investors come from a technical background. So it is important you have someone technical in the conversations. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, so thank you. And uh, I have a few more questions. So uh, back to the technological stack. So could you please uh, describe, you know, the list of technologies actually that you use uh, to implement the solution? Like what's, what programming language do you use? What frameworks, mm -hmm. database, what cloud services maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, for an overview of our stack, um, we, for the backend side, we are mostly in Python. And that's because also the research team uses Python a lot. It's very, for machine learning, it's very quick to prototype in Python. And uh, so it's something that both the research team and the engineering team can use. Then for the parts of the code that are more performance critical, we can actually use uh, Cyton, which is, you know, basically combining C and Python mm -hmm. for, for additional performance. Okay. And we also have for some parts which are really speed critical, we use FPGAs. So we have a, an FPGA developer and that is also connected with the Python framework. But yeah, you, you don't code FPGAs in, <laughs> in Python. Okay. It's the, uh, lower, lower level um, stuff. But yeah, most of the core is in Python. Then, for, then we, we serve a, a RESTful API. Um, we use just Flask to serve the API. So um, that's, this is sold to end clients, but also our front-end is built on top of the very same API. And the front-end, for the front-end, everything is in JavaScript and Node.js. So we use React for the front-end, uh, Node.js on the back-end side, and a few libraries, like charting libraries, like AM charts, um, Yes, but it's mostly React code on the front-end side. And um, yeah, in terms of cloud, we initially we were on Google Cloud, and now we are mostly on AWS. We try to, that's another part where we try to be really cloud provider agnostic. So it's easy for us to switch from one provider to another, and also for us to do on-premise de deployment because certain clients require on-premise deployment. So we try not to use technologies that are specific to one cloud provider. We try to use um, technologies that we can deploy on any, you know, Linux virtual uh, server anywhere. Um, but yeah, we are mostly on AWS right now. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's an overview of our stack. It's pretty pretty standard. Nothing uh, mm -hmm. super custom. Yeah. So what other tools do you use uh, like for managing the process and for, for example, for defining requirements, for managing tasks, maybe something like yeah. Jira or Confluence or, and for communication, as you mentioned, you use mm -hmm. Zoom pretty yeah. much. And what other Yeah, tools? for communication, we use uh, Slack is definitely, we, mm -hmm. I don't think we could live without Slack because yes. that's our most important tool. Or if it wasn't for Slack, definitely some other kind of group chat uh, mm -hmm. Very important, and we use Zoom for the audio and video conferencing. Mm -hmm. uh, for the tasks tracking, we use a combination of Trello and um, 
GitHub issues. We use GitHub for all our version control. So mm -hmm. we use the issue tracking on there as well. Um, yeah, these are, these are the main softwares we use to help our development. We've tried other things like uh, Asana, for example, for task management, but in the end, we found that these tools, at least for the size we have now, which is very small company, uh, this is enough for, for what we need. And really Slack is the most important thing because you know when an issue pop up, you can Slack the person and you don't have to create the issue in an issue tracker and then wait for the person to notice. And it's just faster when we can communicate directly and fix the issue straight away uh, without having to go to a task management system or anything. Okay, sounds good. So, uh, my maybe oh, also sorry, one, one thing uh -huh. I forgot um, that we use also is uh, Jenkins for, okay. you know, for testing. Um, okay. And on that side as well, we initially, for a bit, we tried using on AWS the code build pipeline, but we didn't want to. Uh, yeah, to be contained to one specific cloud provider. So that's why we switched to Jenkins now, which we can deploy on different cloud providers and is very extensible. Uh, but yeah, that's one other tool we use. Okay, okay. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you, it's very, very interesting. And uh, the next question is, so you, you, you mentioned that you need to read uh, much about the different technologies. And you mm -hmm. also held uh, like lectures on different topics internally. So, uh, as a technology leader, so could you could you tell us how do you learn yourself in more details? So, what do you use, like mm -hmm. reading books or reading uh, some media resources mm -hmm. or talking to other experts or maybe participating in conferences or workshops or some other uh, ways? So, what 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 works for you the best actually? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, as I was saying initially, a lot of my time every day is spent reading. And I think it's important uh, because our, uh, on the tech side, everything changes so quickly. Every, every month there is something new, some new library of technology. So it's very important to stay up to date. Um, yeah, in terms of, uh, I read a lot of uh, news websites, like mostly really hacker news, uh, news.ycombinator.com or Reddit, uh, just to you know stay up to date uh, in terms of new stuff that's coming up, and then when I actually when I'm looking into some specific topic more in depth, then uh, I would actually go. I actually use um, YouTube a lot when I can find you know nowadays you can find talks and lectures on some specific technologies. Um, it takes some time, so I use uh, often put it into you know 1.5 speed or two uh, two times the regular speed, just so it's faster. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that's definitely useful to learn because um, often in this, how to say, you know, when you, for example, when you're looking at a library, yes, you can go through the documentation, but it's very flat and it takes some time to understand the high level. Picture. Whereas if you find on YouTube a talk, maybe from the CTO or one of the developers of the library, then it's, it, sometimes it's a, a much better way to get a high level understanding of the architecture of that library and what are the pros and cons. So yeah, I use uh, YouTube a lot actually. 
And I also, yes, I do communicate with other people in tech. On I'm still old school. I still use IRC uh, a bit, but also Slack, um, you know, just for chats and asking questions and specific channels with people who are experts about specific technologies. So that's very useful. Um, that's more specifically, I think, when you have a very a specific issue, uh, it's good to be able to ping people who are experts in that specific area. And uh, yeah, also being aware of what cool things people are doing. And you never know. Sometimes in the moment, you never know what's going to be useful later on. Uh, then you might want to collaborate later on or integrate their solution later on. So it's good to uh, still have some networking basically with other people in the tech industry, I think. Um, but yeah, I do most of that online. In person, mm -hmm. yeah, um, sometimes I would attend some conferences, but nowadays I would say most of it happens online. Um, so you don't have to be physically there with the people. You can still exchange ideas on the web, which is very effective. Yes, yes, you're right. So the last question I have, so what, what motivates you and what is you know like the most interesting part of your job at the moment and uh from the other hand uh what would you name like the most boring uh part of your job <laughs> uh, that's a good question um for me specifically uh, i enjoy it on the engineering side when we have some some numbers where we can quantify how well we're doing. For example, when we were able to speed up our software by 10 times or 100 times um, by some cool engineering um, you know, ideas, that's, that's pretty exciting to me. And uh, yeah, those are the things I find most exciting. When we have some specific benchmarks, it's almost like a video game. You know, you have that number and you want to go from 10 seconds to one second and then it's very satisfying when you when you manage to solve it maybe by parallelizing the code or something um so that's that's one part i enjoy a lot and maybe on the more boring side well yeah a decent amount of time also has to be spent um code refactoring i guess and just uh yeah, because we're moving fast and so we don't always write, you know, ideal code. And then we have sometimes we have to stop doing cool stuff and we have to say, okay, let's just, you know, refactor the code and make it uh, better quality <coughs> so we can maintain it longer term. And that's usually not as exciting, but it can still be a good satisfaction when you look at the code afterwards and it's much cleaner, much in much better organized um so yeah it's it's a bit more boring but it's definitely fruitful and satisfying in the end okay okay alessandra so thank you very much uh, these are all of my questions for today mm -hmm. so thank you very much for the interview and for the talk